The following message is by Pastor Steve Lee of Emmanuel Community Church. More information about the ministry of Emmanuel Community Church can be found online at www.emmanuelcommunity.org. You know, as we get deeper into this COVID-19 pandemic, I'm starting to see more articles coming out about all the ways that our life after this crisis will never be the same, will be, in essence, changed permanently. And it's really interesting to see some of the changes that are already being implemented right now. Many companies have decided to allow their employees to permanently work from home. For those who do need to be on site, many companies are deciding that rather than uh, having in-person meetings, everyone will still be on video conferences, uh, even though everyone may be in the same building or maybe even in the same uh, floor together. Some workplaces are totally re-architecting uh, their, their work sites so that all the walkways are one way only, so that you never have to pass by a coworker who happens to be walking in the opposite direction as you. It seems a little crazy to me that you may have to be ending up doing a lot more walking in light of that, but I guess that's what some companies are choosing to do uh, in order to keep their employees safe. There are even some companies that have purchased special hook-like devices for all of their employees so that they can open doors in the building without ever having to physically touch them themselves. Restaurants are reconfiguring their workflow to reduce as much human-to-human contact as possible. Some are even wondering if after the crisis is over, handshakes and hugs will basically be a thing of the past. Will we ever feel comfortable or safe uh, doing it with anyone other than our family and closest friends? And when I think about all of this and read all these articles, I mean, I really hope that this is not going to be our new normal. I am not arguing against sensible changes that will increase public safety and reduce disease transmission, but here's the thing. I'm worried that we can maybe go overboard with all of this. I'm worried that in our post-pandemic world, our biggest takeaway may be that we need to do everything within our power to make sure that above everything else, we will be safe. Unlike so many other places around the world in America, we've almost never encountered the possibility of death on such a massive scale like we're experiencing under this crisis. But now that it has actually touched us, my worry is that we may learn all of the wrong lessons from this experience and that ultimately fear will have an even greater control over our lives than it already does. It's interesting, whenever the Bible invites us to think about our mortality and the frailty of life on this earth, the conclusion is never that we should redouble our efforts to make sure that we are safe from all harm. Instead, the focus is almost always on whether we are living for the things that really matter from an eternal perspective. Back 
In the summer of 2014, I preached uh, a series on the book of Ecclesiastes. And in that series, we looked at chapter 11 of Ecclesiastes. And I thought that we would actually revisit that passage in light of what's been happening with this pandemic because I think it has a lot to say to us about how we react to it. In Ecclesiastes chapter 11, verse 1 to 5, it says this, Cast your bread upon the waters, for you will find it after many days. Give a portion to seven or even to eight, for you know not what disaster may happen on earth. If the clouds are full of rain, they empty themselves on the earth. And if a tree falls to the south or to the north, in the place where the tree falls, there it will lie. He who observes the wind will not sow, and he who regards the clouds will not reap. As you do not know the way the Spirit comes to the bones in the womb of a woman with child, so you do not know the work of God who makes everything. The writer of Ecclesiastes who refers to himself as the teacher paints a vivid picture of how random and unpredictable our world is. There is a certain level of chaos and danger that is unavoidable to us all. And he also says that there are these mysteries to how our universe operates and how God acts in his creation that none of us can fully understand. Like how a child is formed in its mother's womb. But, you know, living in the 21st century, we do understand how babies develop in the womb. And we know many things that the ancients thought of as mysteries. And yet this pandemic this pandemic has exposed that despite all of our scientific and medical advances, there is actually still so much that we really don't know, isn't there? We've actually known about the coronavirus for a very long time. Medical students learn about it in their first year of medical school. It's actually one of the causes of the common cold every winter. But this mutated coronavirus has revealed how little we truly understand about transmission and behavior of this group of viruses. At first, we thought that you had to cough or sneeze and basically release your respiratory droplets that way in order to spread the infection. But now we know that just talking and frankly even breathing is spreading the virus through what we are calling now micro-droplets. At first, we were told that masks do nothing to protect us. And then overnight, everything changed, didn't it? And masks became mandatory for going out in public, for the public safety of us all. We are told that six feet is the safe distance for social distancing. But now there's new data saying that six feet may not be enough. Will the warmer, more humid summer weather reduce the spread of the virus? That's what So many are wondering, maybe, but the truth is none of us really knows. This is the world we live in, filled with mystery, filled with all kinds of risks and dangers. And up to now, our only encounter with plagues has really been in our history lessons. But now that we're experiencing it in our generation, we've actually discovered how little we really know. And how vulnerable we actually are. And yet, even though these dangers are real, 
our response should not be to shrink back in fear. Instead, the teacher calls us to embrace the risk and respond courageously to the mysteries and dangers of life. In verse 1, he says, Cast your bread upon the waters, for you will find it after many days. Taken literally, these words make no sense to us. I mean, the only time that bread should ever be thrown into water is when you're feeding ducks. But Bible scholars tell us that though this was a meta, that, that this was actually a metaphor that likely referred to ships that were being set off to sea in order to trade with distant lands. And long-distance sailing in those days was incredibly risky. Our oceans and seas are littered with ancient shipwrecks that bear testimony to this truth. But maritime trade was practiced by just about every ancient civilization. Why? Because it was so profitable. And so despite the huge risks involved, the teacher calls us to send out our ships with the hope that they'll return many days later with a huge return on our investment. Verse 4 tells us, He who observes the wind will not sow, and he who regards the clouds will not reap. This is the picture of a farmer staring endlessly at the sky, nervously watching the winds blowing and the storm clouds gathering in the distance. Day after day, he does the same thing, looking out into the sky, wondering if today is the right day to plant his crops. But sadly, he gives up every day, afraid that it might storm. And so in the end, he never plants his crops. And as a result, he never experiences the joy of a harvest. The teacher is warning us that we can spend our entire lives making excuses for why the conditions aren't right to take action. And in the end, we discover that because of that fear, we have done nothing of any real significance with our life. We have never actually sown, and so we will never get to reap. We've stayed in our comfort zones, taken no risks, made no courageous investments. And I think the truth is most of us really struggle to acknowledge the degree to which our choices are driven by our fears. We're afraid of intimacy. And so we keep all of our relationships at a superficial level, never taking any real risks with them. We're afraid of rejection, and so we keep silent rather than saying the tough things that need to be said in a relationship. We're afraid to fail, and so we always choose the safest option where we know that we can control the outcome. And I'm afraid that this pandemic is going to drive us even deeper into being controlled by our fears. Maybe all these fears that the, of this coronavirus is going to make us obsessive about safety and security for ourselves and for our loved ones. Going forward, we will do everything within our power to eliminate anything harmful from endangering us. 
Maybe these months sheltering in place have taught you that your life is actually easier when you have less social contact with others. And the truth is you're not really sure whether you really want to jump back into all of your relationships once things return to normal. I mean, less people, less drama, right? Or maybe the lesson that you're going to take away from this pandemic is that your financial security is an illusion. And so going forward, you're going to find that you're, you're hoarding all of your money, preparing yourself for the next disaster to strike. And I really desperately hope that these are not the lessons that you take away from this crisis. In fact, I hope your response to it will actually be the exact opposite. In Luke chapter 12, Jesus taught this parable, verses 16 to 21, and he told them this parable, the ground of a certain rich man yielded an abundant harvest. He thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. Then he said, this is what I'll do. I will tear down my barns and build bigger ones, and there I will store up my surplus grain. And I'll say to myself, you have plenty of grain laid up for many years. Take life easy, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, you fool, this very night your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? This is how it will be with whoever stores up things for themselves, but is not rich toward God. From a purely financial perspective, this guy actually seems pretty wise, doesn't he? He wants to plan for his future, and so he decides to build larger storehouses so that he can accommodate everything that he's gathered in his life so that he can be financially secure well into his old age, into his retirement. And I think the truth is, this is the same thing most of us are trying to do with our 401ks, our IRAs. But all of his carefully laid plans are ruined when he dies unexpectedly. And I think the question to understanding this parable is this. Why did Jesus call this man a fool? It isn't because he planned out his whole life assuming that he would live well into his retirement years when in fact he would die prematurely. Jesus calls him a fool because his death exposed that despite all of the wealth that he had accumulated during his life, from an eternal perspective, he was worse off than a beggar. He was a fool because he wasn't rich toward God, because he had hoarded all of his money only for himself, using none of it for the things that mattered to God. From a worldly point of view, this guy was a success story. But in God's eyes, his life was a tragic failure. David Gibson, in his book Living Life Backwards, writes, Here is wisdom you will not hear anywhere else. Take the best of what you have and the best of what you are and give them away. Hold them out in open hands to God and to others. Worldly wisdom builds bunkers and barns to prepare for disaster. Biblical wisdom instead throws open the windows and doors of our homes 
and build schools and hospitals and churches and sees rich Christians becoming much, much poorer than they might otherwise have been. You know you're doing it if it costs. The way to begin to do it is to find the things in your heart that you think you cannot do without and give them away. Some of us hold our money very tightly. Panic and fear sets in when we see the savings dwindle. You can begin to pry your fingers open if you give money away. And as you give, you become rich to God. Others find it is our time. I need me time, we say. I'm an introvert. I have to be alone to recharge. Actually, what you will find if you start having others in your space is that you cope. You will not need an ambulance. The world does not end. You survive, and as you give to others who are more needy than you, as you die to yourself in the process, you will find that actually new life is growing in your heart, the kind of new life you weren't expecting or even looking for. The horizons of your world begin to expand. The things you think are most important begin to change. That's powerful, isn't it? Jesus puts it like this in Mark chapter 8, verse 34 to 37. Then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny himself and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? Well, what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? You know, all of us want happiness. All of us want to feel like our life has meaning. But Jesus warns us that there is this deadly instinct that is operating inside every one of us that leads us down all of the wrong paths in our search for that happiness and meaning. In trying so desperately to save our lives, we become more and more self-absorbed, even at the cost of others. You know, from my early childhood, I was convinced that becoming a medical doctor would secure for me everything that I wanted out of life. I would have the pride and the status of being known as a doctor among my peers. I would be financially secure, never having to worry about money again. And I know this sounds kind of strange coming from the mind of a child, but I was even thinking that becoming a doctor would make me more desirable among women. Jesus warns us, though, that following this instinct that all of us have does not lead to life, but it leads to death. You know, when Jesus is talking about us forfeiting our souls, he's not just talking about going to hell when we die. He's talking about the quality of life that we will experience even in this life. You know, you work so hard so that your family can get into that upgraded, bigger house. But you discover that you're actually no happier in that bigger house than you were in the last one. You're counting the days when your kids will all be grown up and your entire life won't be completely dictated by their needs. 
And then, you know, before a blink of an eye, they're suddenly teenagers. And it's a battle just to get a few words out of them when you ask them about how their day went around the dinner table. And you find yourself filled with a sadness that you weren't more present to enjoy those little moments when they were younger and so cute. All you did was just try to survive that time. And as you slave away at your job, your dream is of retirement. When you can finally rest and enjoy life, you tell yourself. But when you finally get there, you hate it. And you actually wish you felt more useful, more needed, and less bored. It's like chasing after a shadow that you can never catch. We never seem to arrive at that promised land that we're all looking for. It takes faith to overcome our instincts and to embrace this paradox that Jesus offers, that in order to truly save our lives, we have to first lose it. Only when we give up our own agenda and surrender our lives into God's hands can we truly save our lives. Can we truly discover the happiness and meaning that we all long for? As illogical as it sounds, you have to first give up your life in order to find it in Jesus Christ. Dave Getz, whom I've been referring to uh, throughout this crisis, in his book Death by Suburb, writes these words. To penetrate deeper in the experience of Jesus Christ, writes Jean Guion, a 16th century Christian mystic, it is required that you begin to abandon your whole existence. You must utterly believe that the circumstances of your life, that is every minute of your life as well as the whole course of your life, have all come to you by his will and by his permission. So much of coveting seems to originate from a deep dissatisfaction with the life I've been given. I want my neighbor's life. It's strange, really, to hate the life I have since I've made sure that every step along the way has been chosen by me. I choose that college. I choose this spouse. I choose my wedding gifts. I choose to go back and get an MBA. I choose when to have kids. I choose to buy in this neighborhood. And yet in many ways, I still fight the life I think I've chosen. This is the life that Jesus wants to free us from. Learning how to truly die to that life. Die to that wrong dream. So that we can really understand the dreams that God has made us for. And so as I close my message today, I want to simply ask you that question. What are the lessons that you are learning from this pandemic? Are they the right ones? And I want to say this. I'm not just talking about what our life is going to be like once the crisis is over. What I would argue is that even now through all of this disruption that we're experiencing, God has never stopped working in our life. God is always on the move. 
And there are things that He wants us to learn and understand even now. Rather than being stuck in this holding pattern because of this pandemic. You know, what I find so interesting is that so much of what unfolds in the Bible, so much of what happens there is in the context of a lot of adversity, a lot of affliction, a lot of suffering. And one of the things that we can see about the way that God works in people's lives is that these adversities, these obstacles, they're not just distractions to what God wants to do in our story. They're actually part of the story that God is writing in our lives. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 8 to 9, Paul writes, Remember Jesus Christ raised from the dead, descended from David, This is my gospel, for which I am suffering, even to the point of being chained like a criminal. But God's word is not chained. You know, it's pretty remarkable that of the 13 letters that Paul is believed to have written in the New Testament, four of them, a third of them, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon, were all written when Paul was in prison. They're known as his prison epistles. And what Paul was basically realizing even in his own life was that even though he may be chained, even though he may be a prisoner, his life doesn't suddenly come to a halt. God's plans for his life are not over. And so it's amazing that some of the most important books that we have in the Bible were written during this season of his life. And I've realized that I had to wrestle with that even in my own life of in many ways feeling like what this COVID-19 pandemic has done is basically put God's plan for our church into a holding pattern. And so as God has been convicting me, saying, you know, my gospel is not imprisoned, my gospel is not chained, that God is not chained, that his work continues forward. It's actually one of the reasons why I decided we need to move forward with his journey groups rather than waiting for the conditions to be just perfect for us to be able to launch the program again. You know, I told you in a previous message too that there was a sense in which I was trying to protect this idolatry series that we were doing and that I didn't really want to return to it until this whole crisis was over and the whole church could meet as a congregation again. And again, God really convicted my heart, you know. I need to return back to that series and believe that even this teaching ministry of the church can continue even though we cannot be together physically. And so I've decided to continue on with that idolatry series in the near future. And there's just been so many ways that God has been challenging me as a pastor. Is anything too difficult for me? What are the limitations you're placing on me and what it means for ICC to move forward as a congregation even in the midst of this crisis? You know, I was really challenged to watch Sharon's testimony because I think her testimony really testifies to what I'm preaching today of how much fear that was in her heart of bringing up these faith issues with her mother. But how through this COVID-19 crisis and her mother becoming positive with it, it initiated her to go to these difficult places and to talk with her mother about her eternal destiny. I thought that was such a, a wonderful declaration for her to realize. What do I have to fear, really? That through this crisis, rather than it causing her to shrink back, 
cause her to lean in and step forward and say, what does God want of me in this season? I want to actually, as I close out this message, show you just this brief couple-minute video uh, that shows us uh, a different perspective on this pandemic through the eyes of faith. And so let's just watch that together. I am praying for that same breakthrough that this video talked about for our church, for our nation, for our world. That rather than the result of all of this making us more selfish, more hoarding, more fearful, that what this pandemic would ultimately represent is a spiritual breakthrough in our lives that causes us to learn how to put our trust in Christ even more, of how to live courageously, and unafraid, realizing that life is fragile and that we are not guaranteed a tomorrow. And yet because of that awareness, it causes us to embrace today with even greater passion to live for the things that matter on the heart of God. Let's pray. Father, that is my prayer for my own heart as well as for everyone here at ICC. That as we go through this crisis together, rather than it instilling lessons in us centered around our fears, what it would do is set us free to release us from that fear. And in this understanding of how frail and short life is, how unpredictable and, frankly, even how dangerous it can be that we would embrace risk knowing that you are with us and be willing to live courageously for the sake of the gospel. Grant us the faith to live in that courage through Jesus Christ who lived and died for us. For it is in his name we pray. Amen. Now receive the benediction. May God give you the faith to lose your life so that you may truly find it in Christ Jesus. May God give you a faith to overcome all of your fears, making courageous investments in his name so that you can experience the joy of his harvest. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, amen. God bless you.